All right, amen. Glad you're here. Take a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 8. I've told you the last couple of weeks that our Wednesday night sermons will come from the five-chapter window that we are reading as we read through the New Testament together. This week, that window is Matthew 6 to 10, so I hope that you're not already behind. If you are, you don't have a whole lot to catch up, so track with us as we read through the New Testament this year. On Sunday mornings, uh, I think most of the Sunday morning sermons this year will feel pretty normal. I think the message tonight will feel relatively normal. There will be some Wednesday nights where we approach the text a little bit differently. Tonight, we're tackling a little bit of a longer passage uh, than we might try to tackle on a Sunday morning. I'm giving you a heads up as I've looked ahead at some of the passages coming up on Wednesday nights. There may be Wednesday nights where we tackle a very, very small passage. And rather than seeing the big idea about an extended passage, we just try to drill down into a particular passage. So the window this week is Matthew 6 to 10. Part of me wanted to look at the Sermon on the Mount. This upcoming Sunday, we're going to look at a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, and there is so much in the Sermon on the Mount that part of me wanted to double dip on that. As I looked at this window, I also really thought about, as I was trying to pick a passage, I thought about Jesus selecting the 12 apostles. And the reason I thought about it is I saw a Facebook, I guess you would call it a meme, a sort of a Christian post that gets shared over and over and over again. And it was talking, saw it this week, it was talking about the apostles. And several people I know, none of them live in Odessa, shared it. And I looked at it, and it didn't even have the list of the 12 apostles right. But people kept sharing it, and I thought, well, we don't even know who they are. So maybe it would be good to talk about who they are and talk about those guys. How many of you think you could name the 12 apostles? Anybody want to volunteer? No? Okay. You can read that on your own then. That'll be your homework. What I've picked for us tonight is Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 23, and then going to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And we are going to read it in just a moment. And there is a reason I've picked that selection of verses. There's not just an arbitrary selection behind that or uh, that's just what I wanted to preach. But there is a, a bookend that we'll talk about later in the evening. I do want to set the stage. We're jumping in mid-story. And part of what we're reading in Matthew 8 and 9 involves some geography that we may or may not be uh, readily familiar with. And so I'm going to share a few thoughts with you, and then up on the screen I'll throw a map, and we'll just kind of go back and forth for a minute to set the stage. The events of Matthew 8, 23 to 9, 9 took place on and around the Sea of Galilee, which was also called the Sea of Tiberias, which was also called the Sea of Kinneret, which is also called the Sea of Gennesaret. That's a lot of names for one body of water, but people have been living there for a really long time, speaking a lot of different languages, rubbing up shoulders against one another, so it would kind of be like somebody asking you, where do you live? And you say, well, I live in the Permian Basin. Well, I live in Odessa, Texas. Well, I live in West Texas. Well, I live in the armpit of Texas. However you want to describe it, everyone would say, okay, I understand what you're talking about. That's sort of what we're talking about here with this lake. So here's a map. This is Israel in the first century AD. If your Bible has maps, you probably have a map that looks almost exactly like this, uh, Israel or Palestine in the first century. Down in the brown blob on the bottom, that's the, the Roman province of Judea. And then you move up to Samaria, and then the little yellow 
shape up at the top is Galilee. So down in the bottom in Judea, I know it's small, but down in the south, that's where Bethlehem is. This is where Jesus is born. And not far from Bethlehem is Jerusalem, all of those down south in Judea. And you go through Samaria up to Galilee, and there are a couple of cities that are of some importance in this particular story. For example, Matthew tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. All of that before moving to Capernaum. So Bethlehem, Jerusalem down south, that's where Jesus was born. Let's zoom in on the northern part of Galilee here. And you can see the lake, Lake of Tiberias slash the Sea of Galilee. So that's the body of water that we're talking about. Up on the northern part of the lake, you see Capernaum. That was where Jesus sort of ventured out on his own when he left Nazareth. And you can see Nazareth down there away from the water. It was a dry, dusty place out in the middle of nowhere. You can imagine what it was like to live in a place like Nazareth. So there's Nazareth. There's Capernaum. Jesus is moving from these places in his life. And in this story, he's moving from Capernaum across the sea down to the south-southeast to an area called the Gadarenes. Lots of names for this place as well, also known as the Gerasenes, also known as the Gergesenes. It's located on the south, southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And so we'll put the map up just one more time, and you can sort of see down in this purple region. That purple region is the area known as the Decapolis, and you can see there's a city called Gergesa with a question mark. We don't know exactly where all of these places were, but we know that this region, this area, is where Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee to visit uh, a demoniac, rather two demoniacs. So, one more thing that you need to know. There is a man in this story named Matthew. There are other places in the Bible where he is referred to by the name Levi, uh, Matthew slash Levi was a tax collector. If you read the lists of the apostles, he is one of the 12 apostles. And traditionally, historically, he's recognized as the author of the gospel that we're studying tonight. When you look at the Greek manuscripts, the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have of the gospels, they're all anonymous. None of them come with a title that says this was written by so-and-so. Just jumps right into the gospel. But this first gospel traditionally associated with Matthew. So that's the setting. Here's the big idea of the group of verses, the end of Matthew 8, the beginning of Matthew 9 that we're looking at tonight. Jesus Christ has all authority. And in parentheses, you might write the word power. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has absolutely all of the authority. And that idea of authority is connected with the idea of power. So this whole section that we're about to read centers on the authority of Jesus. If you take your Bible and look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, and you look at Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse, uh, excuse me, verse, uh, yeah, verse 6, there's the word authority there. And if you look in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, you'll also see the word authority. So the actual word authority shows up in this passage. All of it is about 
Jesus' authority. And the Greek word that we're talking about here is a Greek word exousia or exousia, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Wrapped up in that Greek word are these ideas, authority, power, and right. Not right like you're right-handed, not right like you're correct, but right as in you have the right to do a certain thing. The authority, the power, the right. All of that's wrapped up in this word that we're talking about. And I give you that sort of expanded definition to say this. As human beings, we could imagine a scenario. We talked about this recently when we went through the book of Colossians. As human beings, we could imagine a scenario where somebody had incredible power, but they did not have the rightful authority to exercise that power. And they might abuse their power overstepping the bounds of their authority. We could also imagine a scenario, humanly speaking, where someone had rightful authority to do a thing or to see a thing carried out, but they lacked the power or maybe they lacked the willpower to see that thing actually carried out. And when we talk about Jesus' authority in this passage, he is not lacking in either of those things, either of those things. His authority means he has the right to do a thing and he has the ability to do a thing. All of that is wrapped up in the authority of Jesus in this Greek word, exousia. So look with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 8 We're going to read beginning in verse 23, and we're just going to read to chapter 9, verse 13. Scripture says this, getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So that's our passage tonight. We're thinking about the authority of Jesus. Authority is something that has been an important issue, an important question culturally over the last couple of years. There's been a lot of questions asked about who has authority in certain situations that we have faced because of COVID and the spread of COVID and how are we going to manage this as a society. There have been questions like, who has authority? 
a local school district or a bureaucrat in Washington, D.C.? Who has authority to make a decision for a particular school? There's been questions about who has authority in a situation, the President of the United States or the Governor of a state. There's been something that we've had to wrestle with as a nation. Who has authority, states or the federal government? Who has authority, uh, the government or parents? In some places, thankfully we live in the Republic of Texas, we haven't had to wrestle with this too much, but I have pastor friends in other parts of North America, they have really had to wrestle with the question, who has authority about a local church? Is it the leadership of a local church or is it the local health department that has authority over whether or not and when and how many people will meet in a certain church? We have lived this out, this question of authority. Who has authority and who can exercise authority. I want you to understand that what you've lived through the last couple of months, in a sense, is a key part of the Old Testament story. You could say that the Old Testament is a story about the struggle for authority. And it begins in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, given one rule from the Creator, Do not eat of that tree. And the question set before them in the first temptation, we talked about this this last Sunday, the temptation of Adam and Eve. The question set before them in a real sense is, will you submit to God's authority or will you listen to the serpent and will you operate as an authority unto yourself? Where will authority be recognized? outside of you in the creator or inside of you in whatever your heart desires to do. That same struggle plays out with the nation of Israel in a long protracted story that is very, very discouraging in the Old Testament. Whose authority will you submit to? There is a God, his name is Yahweh. He created the nation of Israel from Abraham. He saved the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out and gave them a land to be his people, that he might rule over them and reign over them and be their authority. And the question going forward for Israel is, are you going to recognize God's authority? Or are you going to do whatever you find it in your heart to do? Are you going to do whatever the other nations are doing? Where will you recognize authority? That same issue, that question of authority, plays out in dramatic fashion when Jesus of Nazareth moves to Capernaum and begins his public ministry. One of the questions, pay attention to this as you read through the New Testament this year and as we read through the Gospels the first part of this year. One of the questions that keeps coming up over and over and over again is, where do you think you got the authority to do that? It's especially clear in the Gospel of Mark. You see it in Matthew, but you see it in Mark immediately. Remember, the Gospel of Mark has no Christmas story. You jump right into the action with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist points you to Jesus, and Jesus shows up, and immediately Mark starts talking about the authority of Jesus. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over demons. He has, this is scandalous to the Jews, Jesus has authority over the Sabbath, Jesus has authority to teach. Mark keeps telling you, early in Jesus' ministry, everybody is amazed at the authority 
that Jesus possesses? Whose authority? That question runs all the way through Jesus' life and ministry right up until the very last week of his life. Do you remember the last time Jesus rode into Jerusalem? He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, symbolic of an action that a king would take. Essentially, he's claiming to have kingly authority. He marches into the city, he goes to the temple, and for the second time, he cleans the temple. He runs all the merchants and all the riffraff out of the temple. And the temple, air quotes, authorities, approach Jesus, and what is the question that they ask him? On whose authority do you do this? We might loosely paraphrase that today. Who gave you the right Who do you think you are marching in here like this and grabbing this sort of authority for yourself? Did Jesus give those temple authorities an answer? He responded in typical Jewish fashion to a question with a question. And it was a question about authority. He said, you want to know where where I get the authority to do this? He said, let me ask you a question. John the Baptist John's baptism, where did John's authority come from? Was it from man or was it from God? Who gave John the authority to baptize, a human being or was it from God? And they sort of stepped back and they had a little holy huddle and they talked about it and they said, we can't give an answer either way. He's got us between a spiritual rock and a theological hard place. There's not anything we can say that will not get us in trouble. So they come back to Jesus and they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, Neither will I tell you by whose authority I do these things. Now that question of authority that Jesus doesn't get into with the temple authorities is essentially what Matthew's talking about in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, through the story of Jesus calling Matthew, Levi, to follow him. So here's the question that we're going to answer. Very, very simple. How does Matthew highlight the unlimited authority of Jesus? Five simple truths from these four episodes. Number one, Matthew tells us that Jesus has authority over the forces of nature. Let's just read this part. Matthew chapter eight, verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. They went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then... He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Living in Odessa, Texas, have you ever wished that you had authority over nature? Attending a worship service in this sanctuary, have you ever wished that you had authority over nature? Some of you are shooting daggers at me right now. All right, we have biometric locks on the thermostat, so you can't make it hotter in here. I turned the heater on for you today. I controlled the nature, the climate in this room, turned the heater up. I was hot, turned it right back down. Look, you live in Odessa, Texas. There are times where you wish that you could control the weather. You get to about August, September, October, it's still 95, 100 degrees. Some of y'all start belly aching and you say, I just wish I could go outside and just turn it down a little bit. 
It's so hot. It's just so hot. What about the wind in the sand? Oh, I picked my kids up from being with my parents Sunday. We met in Lubbock. I'm driving back through La Mesa, and I get to the south side of La Mesa. We just almost had to pull over. The wind blowing and the sand blowing, you could see about 10 feet out in front of the truck. It was just gross. And I thought, it would be really nice to be able to go out and to rebuke the wind and say, hey, that's enough. Time out. 30-minute break. Let me get down to Midland County, and then you can do whatever you want to do around La Mesa. I don't care. Doesn't work that way. How about last Christmas or last winter, whenever it was when it got so cold when it was like the world record Arctic freeze in Odessa, Texas, and pipes are busting and people are losing power and all the rest, and you think, oh, I just want to go outside and turn it up, make it a little bit hotter in Odessa. But we don't have authority over nature. I know a pastor in Amarillo. He's a charismatic pastor. He likes to tell the story that in the early days of the church he started, They were having a prayer meeting, and a tornado came through, and the sirens went off, and there was a storm blowing. And he very calmly walked outside the front door, looked at the tornado, rebuked it, told it to go the other direction, and it did. And I thought, now that's the kind of guy you want to keep around. That's the kind of thing you want to put on a resume, and you're applying to a church. You can cancel your insurance. You don't have to pay for insurance ever again. I can rebuke tornadoes. I can stop fires. It's a bunch of nonsense. You know it is, and I know it is, and he knows it is, and everybody who hears it knows it is. That's the point of the end of the book of Job when Job has been mouthing off to God, and God finally shows up and he says, Job, where were you when I created weather? Remember, he's speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. Where were you? Job, can you show me where the hail is stored and the wind is kept pent up? And Job, can you control these uncontrollable forces? And in the end of it, Job says, no. I'm sorry. I repent in dust and ashes. I spoke about things too wonderful for me. That's how Job ends. It ends here with these guys on a boat on a calm lake, looking at each other, saying, who is this? What kind of person is this that the wind and the waves listen to him? It doesn't work for us, but it worked for him. It's the authority of Jesus over the forces of nature. Secondly, Matthew talks about Jesus having authority over the demonic forces of evil. This is verse 28. Jesus crosses the sea. He comes to the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes. And there are two demon-possessed men who come out to meet him. And they are so fierce, Matthew says in verse 28, that no one could pass that way. Now, I'll be honest with you. This is the kind of passage that we could spend about five Wednesday nights on. And I got about a thousand questions about this story. I don't have answers to any of them. I have questions like, why does Matthew talk about two demon-possessed men in this cemetery when the other gospel authors who tell the story only talk about one? 
Apparently one was worse off than the other, but Matthew says there was actually two there. It's not a contradiction, but it's just a different way of telling the exact same story. I would like to know the history of these guys. Who are they? How old are they? How long have they been out there? Do they have family? Do they have kids? Do they have parents? What happened in their earlier life that possibly led them into this sort of situation where they're oppressed by these demons? I have questions like, uh, what did they look like? Living out in the wilderness in a first century cemetery. I have questions like, who made the chains that they kept breaking? You read that elsewhere. Like they, they tried to bind them with chains and they just broke the chains. Uh, what, what was that like? Was that like a Samson episode? You're not given all the detail that I'd like to know. I'd like to know why Jesus has a conversation with the demons here. He doesn't really do that elsewhere. And I'd like to know how in the world do all the demons know who Jesus is immediately when no one else has a clue? I'd like to know why the demons say, please let us go into the pigs. You've probably heard lots of answers, but the Bible really doesn't tell you why. They would want to go into the pigs. And I want to know why Jesus lets them do it. He says, okay, and they go. I want to know what does it look like when a herd of pigs runs over a cliff into the Sea of Galilee. We're planning a trip to the Holy Lands at some point. Maybe we can arrange that when we go. A demonstration. Show us the pigs going over the edge. You know what I really want to know about this story? I want to know why the townspeople all came out to meet Jesus, and when they all came out to meet him, they said, would you please get out of Dodge? Go away. This is a strange passage. Here's what we do know. There's a lot of things we don't know. Here's what we know. There's two guys afflicted by demons in a bad way, a legion of demons. And they live out in the cemetery, and when people try to tie them up, they're able to break chains. And there's such a menace that people are not even able to go that way. They avoid it. You can't go that way. It's like trying to get down 42nd in rush hour, add in a legion of demons. Don't even think about it. No one even goes that way. Jesus gets in a boat in Capernaum, crosses the sea, taking his disciples right into a storm, gets off where these guys are, walks right up to them without the slightest bit of fear or worry or anxiety or trepidation, and he starts talking to them. He's in complete control of the situation. The demons are actually terrified that Jesus is there. This is another question I'd like completely fleshed out. That he's there to torture them before the appointed time. And at Jesus' word, these men are healed. There's no magical formula. There's no magic words, abracadabra. There's no let me mix up a potion with roots and animal fur and a little bit of this and I'll spit in it and that'll be the magical concoction that controls these demons. There's no wizardry or wand. It's just the word of Jesus. And this legion of demons do exactly what he tells them to do. 
It reminds you of what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica where he says, in the end, it will be somebody Paul describes as the man of lawlessness. Many think this is the Antichrist. And Jesus will come back and he will destroy this man of lawlessness, not with an army, not with a sword, not with an Apache helicopter, not with a nuclear weapon, with his breath. It's not a real battle. It's not a real fight. It's the authority of Jesus over the demonic forces of evil. Thirdly, Matthew tells us that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. This is chapter 9, verse 1 to 8. You remember my pastor friend who tells tornadoes to turn around. When Brooke and I were still in college, I went with a friend to a healing service at this pastor's church. Midweek, sort of a revival-style healing service. And it was everything that you see a, a faith healing type service on TV. It was all of that and then some. And we sat on the very back row, and I sat right next to a kid in a wheelchair, teenager. And there came the point in the service, we went through all sorts of ailments, but there came to a point in the service where the pastor who rebukes tornadoes, tells him where to go, says, hey, if you have back or neck trouble and you'd like to be healed, I want you to raise your hand. And we were all supposed to be looking down, but I, I looked, and he sort of sheepishly put his hand up, and we went through the whole prayer thing and rebuking this and doing this and doing that. And at the end of the service, the kid's dad rolled him out the back door in the wheelchair. And he left with this stinging rebuke of, if you leave this place not healed, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. You know, that never happened with Jesus. Never. Did not happen with Jesus. Certainly didn't happen in this story. This is a story that Matthew tells, but he doesn't tell all of it. He just talks about some friends bringing a paralytic. And if it sounds familiar to you, it's because this is the same paralytic with the same friends that brought him. Jesus has crossed back across the lake to Capernaum. They brought him to the house where Jesus was teaching, and they couldn't get in because it was so crowded, so they cut the hole in the roof, and they lower him down into the middle of the room. Matthew doesn't go into all of those details. He just says they brought this guy and he was there. But it's the same guy, same situation. And it's an amazing thing. This paralytic who is lowered through the ceiling ends up walking out the front door. Jesus heals him. And there's not any of this nonsense about do you have enough faith because Jesus has enough authority to do it. Jesus has the authority to do it. He has the authority to make people well. I don't have a great Bible answer for you. I don't even have a great theological answer for you that will satisfy you to say, why doesn't Jesus do this all the time today when we ask him to do it? I know that's a reality and you know it's a reality. The boy rolled out the back of the service I wanted him to get out of the chair. He wanted to get out of the chair. The preacher presumably wanted him to get out of the chair. He rolled out in the chair. And you know a thousand stories like it. 
But I do know this, the one who has the authority to do it says that in the end, he will do it for all of his people. Revelation 21. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and God will be there with his people. Jesus, the lamb, will be there, and there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more hurt, no more sickness, no more disease anymore. And you can take that promise to the bank because the one who says it has the authority, the power, the right to do it. Fourthly, Matthew says that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. So what we remember in this story is there's a paralytic and he's got the buddies and they lower him in. Jesus heals him and the guy lowered in the ceiling walks out the front door. That's what we tend to remember. What we sometimes forget is that the first thing Jesus said to this guy when they lowered him into the room, when they brought him into Jesus' presence was not get up, take your mat and go home. The first thing he said took everybody by surprise. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. It was an absolutely preposterous thing for someone to say. Preposterous on at least two levels. It's preposterous on one level because there's no way to verify this, is there? Humanly speaking. I mean, he's still laying there. Did his complexion change? Probably not. Did they have a thermal scanner they could see if his temperature changed? No, that probably wouldn't have done any good anyways. How would you know? It's not like they could get on Facebook real quick. Pull your, pull your phone up and see if his Facebook status changed. Like we change our Facebook status, right? I'm a student. I'm a graduate. Facebook status changed, and people see that, and they say, oh, now we know. You graduated, or now you're a student, or you're a single person, and then you get engaged, and oh, I'm in a relationship, well, now I'm married, and you change that, and people can get on, and they can see it. It's sort of an external way we know what's going on, but how would you do this with someone's sin being forgiven? It was preposterous. Nobody knows. How do you know? Anybody could say that. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. How do you know? How would anybody know? It's also preposterous, and this is the thing that really gets them, is that Jesus is claiming to do what only God can do. And that's what they immediately say. That's blasphemy. You can't do that. I mean, how would we know if you could? But you're not God, are you? No, you're not God. You're the carpenter from Nazareth, newcomer to Capernaum. You can't do this. You cannot forgive his sins. So when Jesus says, it's a, a little bit of a confusing part of the story, but when Jesus says, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven or get up. What's easier to say is your sins are forgiven because nobody can falsify that. But if you say to the cripple guy, I have the authority to tell you to get up and go, and he doesn't, then we all know you're a liar and a phony immediately. You can't just run around saying that because it can be falsified really quick. So he says, look, the easier one is to say your sins are forgiven because, you know, who knows? No, I'm going to do something harder. I'm going to tell the guy who can't walk to get up and walk out. So he says, get up, take your mat and walk out. He gets up, he takes his mat and he walks out. And he does it so that they know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. This is such a basic gospel truth that sometimes we forget. 
only Jesus has the authority to forgive your sin. Only Jesus. There are some Christian traditions that say a priest or a holy person needs to be involved. You got to have some sort of on earth, in the flesh mediator who pronounces this forgiveness to you, but there's no human being who can do this for you. There's other faith traditions that tell us, this is sort of going outside of Christianity, that your own moral effort, your own attempts at self-reformation and being a good person will lead to the forgiveness of your sins. That's the heart of Islam, it's the heart of Hinduism, it's the heart of Buddhism, it's the heart of basically every other world religion outside of Christianity. It's up to you to do enough good to basically cancel out the bad. But you know and I know that when you've sinned against the infinitely holy God, that's, that's steep sledding. You're not going to get there, ever. You can't be a good enough person, you can't be morally reformed enough to do that. You know, a popular answer today, this is just sort of the Dr. Phil, Oprah, pop psychology stuff, is that you got to start by forgiving yourself. I have no idea what that means, and it's just a bunch of gobbledygook. There is only one person who has the authority to forgive your sins. It's not the pastor of your church. It's not the guy who claims he can rebuke tornadoes. It's not the guys that wear the funny clothing and swing the smoke around. It's not some holy man in a temple off somewhere with a special path to enlightenment. It's not some daytime talk show host that tells you you've got to start by forgiving yourself. The only person who has the authority to forgive you of your sins is Jesus. Matthew has made this really clear already. He was born and he was given the name Jesus by an angel because he came to forgive his people, to save his people from their sins. He did not come to say, look, you just got to learn to love yourself and forgive yourself. You're whipping this into a really big deal. It's not that big a deal. No, he came so that you could be saved, so that your sins could be forgiven. We talked about this. Jesus is the God-man. We talked about this Sunday. He is fully God and fully human, fully God so that he can pay the penalty of your sin in full and human, fully and truly human so that he can take your place as a substitutionary sacrifice. There is only one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one that can forgive your sins. When he forgives your sins, he promises you earthly, excuse me, he promises you heavenly life, eternal life. But he also has something to say about your earthly life. And that's the last thing I want you to see in this group of passages. Matthew tells us that Jesus has authority over our lives. That may seem obvious, but it's an important reason, uh, it's an important part of the reason we've included this last part about Matthew with these other stories. Like, you remember the old Sesame Street? I think it was Sesame Street. One of these things doesn't belong and they put a couple of things up and they go together and there's an oddball out. Well, there's one of these stories that seems like it doesn't belong. 
Like Jesus is walking on the, uh, he's on the storm and he's not walking on the water in this story, but he's, he's calming the storm. He's exercising authority over nature. And then he's in the Gadarenes in Gentile territory. He's taken on the demons. And then he's healing lame people, crippled people. And then we tack on this part about Matthew. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. What did he do? Well, he rose and he followed him. Go back to the beginning of our passage, Matthew chapter 8. Here's the bookend. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. I understand what it means in verse 23. I mean, it's saying they followed him into the boat. I get it. But it's a bookend. It's a literary device inside the gospel of Matthew saying, look, I'm telling you something about Jesus' authority in this window. And the real rubber meets the road personal takeaway for the authority of Jesus in that he's got authority over nature, he's got authority over demons, he's got authority over sickness and disease, he's got authority to forgive your sins. Here's where the rubber really meets the road for you. Does he have authority over your life? Because he, he walks by Matthew and he looks at this guy and he says, follow me. And he does. And the question for you is, have you? Are you following Jesus? I'm not saying, I'm not asking you, have you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins? Because y'all are the Wednesday night crowd. So the answer is probably yes. I mean, it may not be yes for all of you. There may be some of you that say, truth be told, I've never done that. Done a lot of church stuff, done a lot of spiritual stuff, tried to be a good person, tried the moral reformation path, tried the forgive myself path, tried lots of stuff. Maybe it's time to start there and to say, Jesus, I need you to forgive me of my sins based on your perfect life, your sacrificial death, and your victorious resurrection. But you're the Wednesday night crowd, so I'm guessing a lot of you have gotten to that point. Maybe the more pressing question for us is when Jesus looks at you and says, follow me, are you doing that? I don't mean, are you coming to Wednesday night church? I mean at your home, in your home, at the place you work, with your family, when you're alone, when you're only inside of your own head, when you're driving down 42nd Street or you're driving in a dust storm outside of La Mesa or anything in between, do you recognize the authority of Jesus over your life? Or do you play the religious game of, well, I do these religious things when I come to this room, we sing the hymns, we read the verses, we write the prayer cards, and then I go live as if I am my own authority out there. You know and I know it's easy for people to play that game. You show up on Wednesday night, you show up on Sunday morning, everybody looks around, how are you, good, you, great, fine, everything's good, it's awesome, perfect, not any problems in my life at all, I'm here at church, what could be wrong? And then you leave and you live as if you're your own authority. You make the same mistake 
that Adam made. Make the same mistake that Israel made. Make the same mistake that the the temple authorities made when they tried to question and whittle down the authority of Jesus. Here's the thing. As you read through the New Testament, especially you read through the Gospels, none of us get to pick and choose what we like in here. You don't get to pick and choose what you like. And when it comes to Jesus, you get the Jesus presented to you in the Scriptures And you can say, I recognize your authority over my life. Or you can defiantly say, I don't recognize your authority over my life. But you don't get to play the game of saying, I'll recognize your authority over my life when I'm in this room Wednesday night, 6.30 to about 7.43. But then we're usually done and I go. Then I'll check back in on that authority Sunday morning at about 8.35 because Kind of thin in here at 8.30 when we start. 8.35, I'll check in, up through Sunday school, up through late service. Then I'm going to Rosa's and I'm doing my own thing. You read the Gospels, it's all or nothing. You think about the authority of Jesus, it is a package deal. He is the one who has authority over nature. He is the one who has authority over all of the demonic opposition that exists. He's the one who has authority over sickness and disease and illness. He is the one who has the authority to forgive your sins. He is the one who has authority over your life. And I think the The call for you and the call for me is no different than the call for Matthew. Follow me. Looks a little bit different for you and for me than it did for Matthew to physically get up and to follow him around. It's the same call. Follow me. That's the authority of Jesus. Let's pray together.